Hi, welcome to Help with Parkinson's podcast, episode number 59. Our guest today is Dr. Subramanian, movement disorder specialist from Hershey Medical Center in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And I'm your host, Warren Butfinick. This is a part two of newly diagnosing Parkinson's patient. And this will be about therapeutic. So Dr. Sub, you wanna take over for that? Hi, Warren, thanks again for having me. So last week we uh, discussed briefly uh, the signs and symptoms of early Parkinson's disease, how it's important to recognize them and recognize them well and differentiate it from other diseases in order to make a definitive diagnosis. And we already discussed in last week's podcast that there are many diseases that are difficult to differentiate. Um, and even in experienced hands, sometimes it's a matter of following the patient longitudinally to see whether they improve over time or they actually worsen over time. As expected in Parkinson's disease, if you're untreated over time, there would be changes that would suggest that you have disease progression. And if you do have disease progression, that can be benchmarked against what is known about how the disease progresses and the, the clinician can make a diagnosis based on that. Now there are situations when this is not clear and um, waiting over a period of time or longitudinally following may not be practical for a variety of reasons. And in that case, sometimes, not always, but sometimes a clinician might decide to treat the patient and see whether there's a therapeutic benefit and that therapeutic benefit may allow us to decide whether this is, a, this is a disease that responds to medication, number one. And number two, the way you respond to medicine may actually tell us a little bit about whether you have Parkinson's disease or not. Um, now, before we jump into that, uh, I do want to caution that all this discussion is somewhat theoretical, and it has to be um, customized to an individual patient. So what I'm saying here doesn't mean that everybody has to go through exactly the same pathway, but the vast majority of people will want to go through this pathway that I'm going to describe. So if a patient is suspected to have Parkinson's disease or Parkinsonism, diseases that look like Parkinson's disease, but not necessarily Parkinson's disease, then, um, and if the doctor then in consultation with the patient uh, and the family decides, okay, I'm not sure whether you have Parkinson's disease or one of the diseases that respond to medication, I wanna give you a therapeutic trial. I wanna try the medicine for a short period of time and see how you respond to it. Then the medicine that is frequently used is a medicine called carbidopa levodopa. And the other name for it is cinnamon. First of all, it needs to be dosed correctly and it needs to be dispensed correctly. So for most adult patients, the medication should be carbidopa, levodopa 25 slash 100. And this pill is typically yellow and round, very rarely nowadays. It does come as an oval shaped yellow pill, which is a brand name uh, formulation called cinnamon but most of the time it's a round pill, the generic form of it, and it's yellow, pale yellow in color. Now this is important because with the same name, carbidopa levodopa, there are two other formulations, 
and one of them is 10 slash 100, the other one is 25 slash 250, both of which are inappropriate for early Parkinson's disease and should not be given. So it should be the yellow 25 slash 100 formulation. And as we briefly touched upon in last week's podcast, this medication has a relatively low half-life, uh, small half-life. When you swallow the pill, it stays in the blood for only about two to three hours, and then it gets excreted. However, once it crosses the blood-brain barrier, enters the brain, it does live in the brain um, as a metabolite of it, which is called dopamine. Dopa gets converted to dopamine and gets sequestered and stored within nerve cells. And in early Parkinson's disease, it can give you as long as four to six hours each time you take a pill. But again, it's only four to six hours. It does not last 24 hours. And as it might be obvious to the listener already, the pill does not have an immediate effect. It cannot have an immediate effect because it does need to go into your body. It needs to go into your bloodstream. And from the bloodstream, it has to go to the brain. And in the brain, it needs to be converted into dopamine, all of which takes time. So if somebody takes a pill and magically within two minutes they're better, it can't be due to the pill at all. It's just psychological. You're feeling better because of the psychological effects of the pill. The pill cannot work that quickly in drug-naive patients, people who have never taken the pill. It can't make it work that quickly. So if you're brand new diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, or you're not even diagnosed, you're like, oh, well, you want to try medicine to see whether it helps you or not and you're taking the pill for the very first time, the key is that you need to take it for several days, typically three weeks. And you need to take at least one pill three times a day, separated by six hours, minimum. Most cases, uh, when people come to see me, I give the pill every four hours. So typically a patient is taking four pills a day, but it's not all four pills at one time, but it's four pills divided in time. Um, so for example, 6 a.m., 10 a.m., 2 p.m., and 6 p.m., or 7, 11, 3, 7, something like that. Um, that is the typical course of giving this medicine. And again, the logic is that the medicine needs to be absorbed in your stomach. It has a relatively low half-life, meaning it doesn't stay in the bloodstream for more than two to three hours. It needs to cross the blood-brain barrier and go into the brain and get converted into dopamine. And once it's get converted into dopamine, it's sequestered and stored within dopaminergic cells. And typically in early Parkinson's disease, it stays in the brain for approximately six to eight hours or maybe even less. Um, and therefore, dosing it any differently is incorrect. And just taking a couple of pills a day and taking them together or taking it once a day is not correct because it's not going to tell you anything, not anything useful. Um, it's not going to tell you whether the medicine is effective. It doesn't tell you whether you're levodopa responsive condition. It doesn't even tell you whether you have Parkinsonism or not. So it cannot be a therapeutic trial unless it's done correctly. And the last point is perhaps the most important point is that you have to patiently take it for at least three weeks. Now the question is, why do you have to take it for three weeks? And that has something to do with what we call um, steady state. And for those of you who are pharmacists, and I know Warren is one, um, this is the body's mechanism of bringing medication to a steady level. 
And that has to do with how our body deals with medications using enzymes and what we call pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. And for this, the brain has a particular enzyme that converts um, levodopa to dopamine. And that particular enzyme has to be stimulated and it has to be in its optimal shape. And this happens only over time. It doesn't happen right away. So for efficacious, good manufacturing of dopamine in the brain and reaching steady state, you gotta give the body some time. You cannot just take it for a couple of days and say, well, it didn't do anything, that, and that it's a failed trial. It's not, it's a pseudo failed trial because you didn't really give the body any chance to make it work. Or you take it unevenly. You take one pill one day, next day you take two pills, another day you take three pills, uh, one day you don't take it at all, or for several days you don't take it at all. Well, I'm doing feeling good today, so I'm not taking the pill. I'm going to just take it whenever I feel like. Well, these are all wrong ways of doing it. None of these things are going to work if you don't take it consistently every day, whether you have symptom or not. And the correct way to assess whether you have had a therapeutic trial this is adequate and appropriate is that, yes, you get the yellow pill. Two, you take it at least three times a day, approximately six hours apart. Preferably take it four times a day, four hours apart. Take it for at least minimum of three weeks. Now, there is a caveat. If you have very mild symptoms, somebody might give you half a tablet instead of a whole tablet, which is okay. Taking half tablet four times a day is okay. Uh, instead of taking a whole tablet four times a day. Sometimes that may be too much. And many doctors might say, man, let me give you a smaller dose, which is okay. Um, and then waiting for a minimum period of three weeks to see whether you're symptomatically better is a therapeutic trial. And a successful therapeutic trial would be for you to be evaluated at the end of three weeks. Or the doctor might say, just give me a call and tell me how you're doing. Is all your symptoms better? or take a video and send me a copy of your video, or uh, send me a long, let's have a phone call, let's call and talk about how your symptoms are feeling at the end of three weeks, all of which are reasonable. Um, of course, seeing the patient directly one-on-one -on -one and evaluating whether your symptoms got better uh, objectively um, and putting your eyes on the patient may be good, may be a very good way of figuring out whether that worked or not. Anyway, all of the, what I just said, a therapeutic trial of levodopa in drug-naive patients is definitely not something that you finish off in a day or two. It's something that takes three weeks, um, and that's how it needs to be correctly done if you're using carbidopa levodopa. Now, there are alternatives to it. There are people who say, well, we don't want to wait for, for that long to see what's going on. I don't want to patiently take medicine without knowing what, what, what's gonna to happen to me. And some people are just plain reluctant to take medicine three times a day when they have very mild symptoms, like, oh, that's too much medicine. I don't wanna take it that, that much in, in early stages of disease. It's too demanding that I should take medicine every four hours. For people like that, there are other options. Um, there is a medicine called amantadine, um, which can be effective in early Parkinson's disease and can give you some clues whether it's working or not. And the um, good thing about that medicine is you can take it twice a day. However, again, it's not something that works right away. 
It also something that you have to take for a little bit, at least two to three weeks for you again to reach the steady state aspect of that medicine. And sometimes that's useful enough and you don't have to go through a levodopa trial. Then there is people who don't want to do that either. You want instant effect and you want to see something right away. Um, it's not easy to do, but it can be done if you're willing to pay the money for it. There is an injectable medicine called epimorphine. It is expensive. And in uh, special situations where you're willing to pay out of pocket, you can get uh, apomorphine injections done. And that can show whether you will respond to dopamine quickly. But it is expensive. It has side effects such as nausea and so on and so forth. And it's typically not done in the United States because it's not approved for this use. And it's very difficult to get insurance approval for doing apomorphine trial for drug-naive brand-new patients. It's typically approved only on patients who have chronic Parkinson's disease or end-of-dose wearing off. Um, but uh, apomorphine trials are used in Europe and Canada, Japan, other places where uh, such insurance restrictions are not there. So it can be used to see whether your dopa responds to um, early. Now, none of these tests that we just talked about, um, therapeutic trial of levodopa, therapeutic trial of amantadine, or therapeutic trial of apomorphine, uh, makes the definitive diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. It does not tell you that you have for sure Parkinson's disease. It simply tells you that your condition responds to the medication. And as we already discussed before, in many other podcasts, Parkinson's is not the only disease that responds to levodopa. Many other diseases like progressive supranuclear palsy, um, uh, MSA, multisystem atrophy, uh, Parkinson's related to uh, strokes like vascular Parkinsonism, all of them do respond to carbidopa levodopa or some of these other medicines. So you can't just use the therapeutic trial as an indication that uh, you have Parkinson's disease. But it helps, it gives you a clue. It also helps us decide whether we want to treat the patient or not. If they are levodopa responsive, it, it tells the doctor, oh, we can have some success in treating the patient. So um, that's the therapeutic trial part of when you're trying to decide whether somebody is responding to medicine and whether that gives you a clue of the diagnosis or not. Now, let me um, pause for a second, and we'll come back after um, this, after I give Warren a chance to, you know, maybe clarify some of these things. And we'll discuss the aspect of when to treat Parkinson's disease and how early is early, which is really the key question. We'll come back to that in a second. But I want to make sure we covered the issue of therapeutic trial. This is a test dosing to make sure the patient is going to respond or not. I hope that was covered well. Yes, yes it was. Thanks, Dr. Soob. So um, yeah, a lot of people, they don't understand that you have to take it consistently to get the right effect. And uh, you're just wasting your time and you just end up with side effects. And you, you, you really never find out if you truly have Parkinson's. If, uh, and uh, you could, if you don't feel well during the day, you're just wasting that part of your life not feeling well when you could be uh, under control. So uh, that's, that's I think that's a, that's a very good point. And I, I meant to say that I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, yes. Yeah, so during the therapeutic trial, incorrectly dosing medicine will give you undesirable side effects. And that can easily dissuade you from 
trying it any longer and incorrectly labeling yourself as not responding to levodopa, which is a big disservice to yourself because you're simply um, negating yourself from the benefits of a very useful drug for the rest of your life or for a very long time. And you're also mentally biased against the medicine if you don't take it correctly and you get the side effects. So let me give you some examples of it. It's not uncommon that uh, when patients take uh, a therapeutic trial of levodopa in the first few days to feel a little nausea. And most of us, when we give this medicine for the first time, we will tell patients, it's not uncommon that you will get a little bit of nausea. And that's because in your gut, in your stomach wall, there is this enzyme AADC, aromatic amino acid decarboxylase. And that enzyme is not fully uh, induced when you take the levodopa for the first time. If you don't have enough of it and it's not inhibited sufficiently with the carbidopa, you can get stimulated nausea because of the conversion of carbidopa, levodopa into dopamine in your gut wall. And that stimulates your gut membranes and gut muscles, resulting in some nausea. So what we do tell patients is that the first few days, first two or three days, or maybe a week, you take additional food, some small food, a piece of banana, an apple, or you know, a glass of orange juice, something that you take with the carbidopa levodopa until your gut wall has the induction of the enzyme and the enzyme induction overcomes the nausea. Typically that works really well. After a week or so, you no longer have nausea and you can take the pill without taking any food. But if you're not told that and you didn't take it and you actually overdosed yourself with no medicine, so instead of taking one pill every six hours, you took all three pills together, of course you're gonna get nausea. And of course you're going to be sick for the next several hours because you just overdosed yourself and you don't have the enzyme to deal with it. So um, you will uh, you're condemn yourself as a patient as non-responsive to the medicine oh, it didn't do anything, gave me a terrible side effect or whatever. And that's not the correct way to do things. So it's really important to follow the instructions and do it right. If you don't do it right, you can, as, a, as an example, as I told you. There are many other examples. Uh, we just picked one example of how incorrect dosing during therapeutic trial uh, can create an issue. Another common example is not doing it long enough. Oh, I tried it. And it's like, how long did you try it? Well, I took it for a couple of days. It didn't do anything, so I quit on it. Well, a couple of days is not good for this medicine at all. If you're going to take it for two days, then don't even try it. Uh, it ain't worth it because there's zero chance that it will cure your symptoms or even provide any kind of clues about improvement in two days or three days. It cannot. It's simply incapable of doing that quickly. So um, if you're not wedded to the idea of trying it for two to three weeks patiently, well, then it ain't even worth going there. So anyway, I think... Um, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that, that issue, and I think that's, that's a very important one. Let's move on and talk about um, when to treat and how early is early, uh, and this is an important one. So uh, this is a slightly different perspective. So this is a situation where, let's say, either the doctor is sure that you have Parkinson's disease, and he or she told you, yep, I'm sure you have Parkinson's disease, there's no additional test to be done. I don't need to longitudinally follow you anymore. I don't need to give you another therapeutic trial. We already tested. We know that it responded. Everything points to the fact that you have Parkinson's disease. Now the question is, do you arrange to start treatment and do you always have to arrange to start treatment? 
And the answer is not 100%. If you have very early mild disease, and even if you're sure about the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, there's no evidence that um, you have to start treatment right away. But on the other hand, is there any evidence that if you start treatment right away, it's going to put you in a disadvantage? That ain't true either. So the idea of waiting to treat, or put away, put away treatment, put away treatment until you become so severe, that's the only one you're treated. That school of thought is totally gone. We don't do that anymore. We treat when treatment is necessary. Now, what does that mean? When do you call it necessary? And the key word is functional disability. So the way we, we treat Parkinson's disease and we continue to follow this rule is that if you have symptoms that is causing disability and it has to be functional disability, and what do I mean by that? For example, if your dexterity is in the way of doing things that you like to do, um, you like to fish and you go to the place where you fish and you can't get your... Uh, uh, hooking equipment uh, for catching fish uh, in, in good shape because your hand is trembling and you're having dexterity problems and you can't put your bait correctly and you can't enjoy life. And fishing is something that you really enjoy going out every weekend and going out and fishing and whenever you're free time, that's what you want to do. And um, you're no longer getting the pleasure out of it. Well, okay, that's functional disability because that's something you want to do. Uh, another example would be, uh, let's say you're younger and you're working and you're somebody who has to use the computer a lot, you have to type a lot, and you have functional disability because you can't type anymore. Your hand frequently hits the um, wrong button or when you're holding the mouse, uh, you can't get it to come to the right spot, so you're struggling with that. Um, or whatever, you know, those examples where you are having functional disability with your with your finger dexterity, another good example. Um, if you are in public relations, and if you are in a job where smiling and showing your enthusiasm, uh, for example, you're a salesperson and you have to uh, make a pitch to sell, and if you're stoic, you can't show a facial expression and you can't show your enthusiasm, and you always will have the same face, um, you may not make a lot of good sales, and that might affect your um, your job performance. And in that case, you have functional disability. Um, another extreme example would be, let's say you're a dentist and you have tremor in your hand and you go to the waiting area uh, and you walk with the tremor, people are going to run away. They're like, oh my God, you know, this person came to, uh, I don't want this person to be working on my tooth or whatever. So these are some examples of where I would say, um, functional disability. So functional disability directs whether treatment is given or not. Now there is a debate now, and we're still all very actively involved in this debate, is do we treat as soon as you diagnose regardless of functional disability or not? And this is still not resolved because the idea of treating people even before they come down with functional disability would be if we can prevent disease progression. If we can treat early, and treat well, can they uh, prevent the disease from getting any worse? There is some indication that there may be some truth to it, but it's not definitive. There are many studies that have been done. One of the famous studies was using levodopa itself. Uh, it's a study called 
allodopa. And what this particular study showed is that if you use modest doses of medicine and did it well, so for example, 100 milligrams three times a day, or 150 milligrams three times a day, and patients were tested for well over 40 weeks, it didn't seem like it did anything negative, and it did seem like improved the quality of life. And even when patients were taken off their medicines, they seemed to be lingering benefit after they were taken off medicines at the end of 40 weeks, indicating that perhaps there's no real net negative for this uh, treatment, and there may be some tangible long-term benefit, lingering benefit, even when the medicine is stopped. Now, the, the, the science here is very soft. It's not 100% clear. So there are more studies going on and along those same lines using a number of other drugs. Um, Azelect, which is otherwise called rasazuline, has been tested for disease progression marker. And again, there's been mixed picture, some studies showing good effect and some not showing good effect. So again, we do use it in early Parkinson's disease because it's effective in controlling symptoms, but also there's a promise that it might actually slow down progression of disease. Um, but this isn't panned out. The FDA has not approved that indication yet. So um, that debate, how early is early? And do we treat all early Parkinson's disease, all comers, as soon as you're sure 100% that they have Parkinson's disease, you should treat them. This is still um, not completely uh, resolved. But what is resolved is that if you have Parkinson's disease and you have functional disability, you should definitely undergo treatment. Delaying treatment doesn't give you any advantage whatsoever. So the old notion, 10-year-old notion that you should wait until you really can procrastinate, 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 and you really have significant disability, and that's when you start treatment. That school of thought is completely gone. It's archaic, no longer applicable, and it should not be done. People should be treated if they need treatment. If they have functional disability, they should be treated. And they should be treated safely and effectively with good medicines. But the right thing is to treat, take the treatment correctly. Um, if the doctor says take pill three times a day and he, he or she specifies the time, uh, take it at 10 o'clock and then next dose should be at two o'clock and the next dose is at six o'clock, well, take it at that time. Um, or if the doctor said take it four times a day and he said it's gonna be seven, 11, three, seven, then seven is seven, 11 is 11, three is three and seven is seven. So the, the importance of treating and compliance, staying with the plan, uh, is, cannot be underemphasized. So the bottom line is, um, things have not changed a lot, but uh, some improvements have been made in Parkinson's disease treatment. And the most important, most valid point, I think, for this podcast, and what's most important that we want to give the message is that um, procrastinating and waiting until you have so much disability, so much pain, and so much discomfort until you, before you start treatment, that is uncalled for. That's not necessary. Um, also, very early treatment before you even know whether you have Parkinson's disease, that's also not called for. But treating when you need treatment is the right thing to do. And that's where I leave the debate at. Right. And uh, yeah, I know the thinking used to be, let's say you diagnose at 60, the doctor will say, this medicine I can give you is only good for five years. So I'd rather give it to you when you're 65 into 70 instead of now to 65. And that's, that's still in the literature out there. And that's, that's what makes people nervous. 
that's absolutely old literature, archaic literature. If it's still there, then that needs to be dumped. Right. Uh, that, that's simply not correct. Um, procrastinating treatment just for the conserving your treatment options is just plain wrong. And it's not true at all. And in this day and age, because we have so many medications available, so many options available, and beyond medicines, there are other things available like surgery and, and newer things are coming up, rescue medicines, gene therapy, pumps, everything is there. Delaying treatment or procrastinating on treatment just for the sake of uh, saving it for you know, a better day is simply not right. Right. Still out there though. So I always like to tell people that because you hear people start saying that every once in a while, like they're going to wait till they don't feel as they feel worse, you know, which is kind of irrational, I guess, if you think about it. Yeah. I mean, just like anything else, you don't wait until something gets worse for other things. Right. You know, the analogy of using pain, right? I mean, people say, I have a little headache. I won't take any medicine. I will just wait until it gets better. Then they say, I have a little bit more pain Then I might just uh, put a little hot water bottle on my head and see what happens or put some ice on my head or whatever. And then uh, I might just go take a sleep or whatever. And then the next thing is like, okay, keep on escalating. Next, 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 next. You don't go see a doctor until the pain gets to a point where you really uh, are. Now, that analogy of pain, right? Why this is a common human behavior that you just wait, 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 wait until it gets really bad enough. That's not the way you treat Parkinson's disease because, again, this is not a symptomatic disease that you did symptomatic treatment. This is something that you need expert advice on uh, how it affects and how disability is going to be affecting you. And you're not in a position to be able to judge the progression of disease unless you see a neurologist or an expert movement disorder specialist who can advise you as to where you are and where you stand and where you're going to progress. So I think it's important that you have a discussion with the doctor. And if the doctor tells you you're better off taking treatment and they advise you to take it correctly, then you follow it. Right. And what, what do you think about, you talk about people seeing Dr. Google by looking things on the internet. Do you think people should keep up with things on the internet or just rely on their doctor to presented to them? Well, I think there are two sides to the coin. I always like to have my patients educated, knowledgeable, and up to speed because that makes my life a lot easier. Because when I talk to them about a particular condition, they're like, okay, they can relate to it because they've read up on it. But what you read up has limitations because the way things are written up in the Google or whatever, internet anywhere, or even in Facebook or chats or blogs, etc. There are individual patients, individual experiences, and they're not, uh, they're generic. They're just overall things. How it's customized to you as an individual, as a patient, is where the doctor-patient relationship comes into play. A doctor is going to take into consideration, a good doctor is going to take into consideration a lot of other things. They're going to look at your overall health, what other things are going on with you, what's your social situation, what is your need, how you're going to be functioning, what your plans for, for the next two years, three years, four years, five years, 10 years, and then customize your treatment based on that. Um, a lot of decision-making goes when somebody is given a medicine. Is this the right medicine for this person? And if so, how long will it work? When will it work? Are there any drug interactions that they may have? Is it safe to give this to this patient? 
do you think this is a good idea for me to give this patient this particular medicine and get the result that I'm hoping to get from this patient? All of these things go into consideration when a doctor prescribes the medicines, right? It's not just, hey, you have the symptom here, push a button, I give you this pill. That's not the way it works. You have to keep into, in, in due diligence what you're going to do. Is it going to produce the effective result that you're looking for? And what is the chance that it'll happen versus not happening? That's something that I, as a physician, and any other physician will keep in mind when they're prescribing medicines. So it's not a you know, push a button thingy. If that was the case, we wouldn't need medical school or neurology residency or fellowships in Parkinson's disease or anything of that sort. We just, yep, you have this one, push a button, take this pill, be done with it. Right. Um, that, that, that's, we are not there yet. Maybe it'll happen in the future. You know, we see in Star Wars movies and things like that, there's, uh, you know, a quick test tells you what it is and you get a shot or a pill, boom, you're done, you know. And that might happen uh, sometime in the future, but certainly at this point, we're not there yet. We're still in a very old-fashioned way of doctor-patient relationship, talking, listening carefully, um, you know, reinventing uh, the diagnosis every time you see and vetting it and making sure that you're always getting it straight and, um Questioning yourself every time, you know, am I doing the right thing for the right patient at the right time? And that questioning nature and that doctor-patient relationship is crucial. That's what gives you the best treatment because a doctor who is self-evaluating his own diagnosis at every time is the smartest person because they're asking the question, am I doing the right thing for my patient? Somebody who is not doing it, not reevaluating it, not asking all the questions and reevaluating it is simply doing push-button medicine. That's not what a doctor is supposed to do or a specialist is supposed to do. They have to customize treatment on patients. So Dr. Google, unfortunately, can't do that for you. Not yet, at least. There may be futures coming, coming where Dr. Google can actually have empathy and you know, knowledge and skills and adjust everything and customize treatment. But at the present time, as far as I know, there's no Dr. Google who does that. Hey. And going, going back to the uh, start taking your medication on a trial basis, you're saying about the stomach irritation. Uh, is it true that that's, that that will not lead to ulcers or any type of illness? That it's just it's right. just just it just makes you feel bad. So because I remember when that started with me, I, I was much more comfortable knowing that it wasn't going to cause anything. Yeah, the nausea has nothing to do with anything else other than the enzyme induction. It is, it's just that nausea is due to GI stimulation from the dopamine that's locally produced. And that uh, will dissipate over time because the enzyme gets induced. Once the enzyme is induced, then the conversion is much more efficient. And then the carbidopa will block it more effectively. Right. But in the first few weeks, the carbidopa blockade is not very... Uh, first few days, not even a week. It's typically the first 10 days or so that the carbidopa blockade is not, not as strong as we want it to be, resulting in uh, local production of dopamine. And we're hoping that um, the AADC inhibition occurs fairly quickly, and carbidopa will do that in about 7 to 10 days. And it's safe. I don't think there's anything to worry about it. Now, this can happen in patients who get the treatment also. It's not just a therapeutic trial, but let's say a doctor knows for sure, yeah, he's Parkinson's disease here, take your carbidopa and levodopa. I still tell them, you know, you might get nausea in the first week or two and uh, just take some 
small snack or something and it'll mitigate your symptoms. And it does. Right. I think people need to be aware of that because some may go off the medicine thinking they're going to give themselves an, an ulcer. Yeah, well, that's why they need to have a conversation with their doctor. And, right. and, and that's one other thing that's probably worth mentioning. It's not related to this topic, but it's worth mentioning that some people um, get all bent over shape when they are given the a piece of paper from pharmacy, which is usually not a piece of paper, it's like a book, you know, they got 20 pages about a drug. And they read everything in there, and there may be a lot of side effects that are listed, nausea, hallucinations, you know, uh, this, that, and the other thing, you know. And sometimes it even says that somewhere. Um, you can't read it that way, because as you know, Warren, that the way that, uh, that paper that the pharmacist gives you is made, is based on cumulative knowledge over the years on how the drug has affected multitudes of patients. It's not customized to the individual patient who's taking the carbidopa-levodopa on the first time. And we all know that carbidopa-levodopa does not produce hallucination on day one. It cannot. Uh, but if you read it and say, oh, you know what? It says that, so I'm not taking the pill. Well, that's un unfortunately not a wise move. And a lot of that is people, it's a less than 1% side effect number, which is meaningless. Correct. And yeah. also it's not shown in time as to when that happened. You know, did that 1% patients who get that side effect got it on day one when they took the pill or did they get it 20 years into the disease? You know, or, they, that, or that 1% could be somebody in the, in the study that just happened to have that happen to them. Right. If there's one person that had that, or even if it's two percent. So, for example, I'll take a tangible example. Carbidopa levodopa producing hallucinations. Uh, it is well known that it can produce hallucinations, but it doesn't produce it on day one, and it doesn't produce it even, even on day 21 of a early Parkinson's patient. It happens 15, 20 years into the disease. You have many years of the disease, and you've taken medicine for many years. Yeah, then you could have levodopa-induced hallucinations. But you can't get levodopa-induced hallucinations in early Parkinson's disease the first week or two. So somebody read that hallucination, oh my God, I don't want to be seeing this, that, and the other thing. Well, that's not right. So again, I think the point is, the point of my message is that customization of treatment, communication with your doctor, you know, having that open trust and conversation with your doctor to decide what is right and what is not right, and what is applicable to you and what is not applicable to you, it's important. And if you don't have that, then you're not going to be successful in treating your disease. Right. And the other thing that maybe old, old studies is you tell somebody, you, you try that hot dog, that new hot dog at the store, they'll say, oh, I can't eat protein. Mm. You know, and the wife says, yeah, I, he eats protein at eight o'clock at night to bed, at bedtime. Yeah, I think we, we already discussed that in many podcasts. Right. I mean, uh, this is outside the scope of what we're talking today, but I agree with you that there's another myth about, you know, protein interfering with drug absorption. Right. So anyway, uh, to summarize our today's conversation, um, I want to just hit upon the main point, which is um, procrastinating treatment is not needed. If you need treatment at the right time, you need to take the treatment. Uh, early treatment, very, very early treatment before you get functional disability is still controversial. Most people don't do it, but you treat when you are symptomatic and you need the treatment is appropriate. All right, so shall we wrap it up here? Yeah, we touched everything. And thank you very much, Dr. Sue. You're welcome.